This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC podcast where we hear the stories of those who shape the history and culture of our nation's capital. Warning, the following program contains brief profanity and offensive historical language. Listener discretion is advised. Humanities DC presents Porch Tales, The Disappearing of Sister Coco with Professor D. Boos. You know, I don't know what has happened to me. Um, I think, I think how my, how my life doesn't seem to be as congruent. I don't know. I don't know. Yesterday, I, I found myself thinking about how how I found myself, you know, sleeping on a lonely cot cot in my sister's house. You know, after all these years. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not scornful about it or anything like that. But just how this always happened. But it asks, so it asks. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Professor D. Boost, alongside DJ Influence. In this final episode of The Disappearing of Sister Coco, We hear how she moved through the turbulent 1960s and 70s into a life of obscurity. But perhaps most important, we ask the question, what are the consequences of a life of activism? What happens to a black freedom fighter in twilight? FBI Raid Summer 1969. They came in, fanned out, and they didn't see anybody. And as they were leaving out, some of the last ones said, uh, so-and-so, sir, whatever his name is, can you come here a minute, please? <laughs> and he came back to my closet, and I had several weapons in the closet. Long guns, short guns, ammunition, so I was arrested that night and um, booked. So I finally had an official record. They uh, said that I could have someone to come and post for me and I'd be released in the morning. And I was. And they said, um, you know, don't go out of town. If you have to go out, let us know. So we'll know your whereabouts. So I said, okay. Howard Moore was the attorney. Snick attorney who kind of took care of people, you know, when they got arrested, go to jail, they bail them out and that kind of thing. So Howard surmised that they just wanted to have a record on me, something that they could use to to put their hands on me if they needed to, where I am, where about where I am, what I do, that kind of thing. So that's my FBI story. <laughs> so that case, it didn't it, it didn't go to, to, to court. It was essentially just dropped. Yeah. So this is the a question I keep asking, um, but because every time, 
at each period, it seems that there are more intense things happening to you. So the question again is, at this point, you know, George has attacked you, the FBI has raided your apartment, they've thrown you in jail, um, and even one night is a lot. You now have this record so they can legally follow your every step, and you're still fighting the fight. Miss Coco, <laughs> what, what's driving you? Mm. It has become very uh, clear that the uh, government is working uh, in cohorts with the uh, local agencies, the police, and uh, a brutal attempt to try to uh, liquidate the Black Panther Party. So out of that uh, investigation, we hope to uh, bring the truth to the American people so that we can have peace in our communities. From CBS Washington, in color, Face the Nation, a spontaneous and unrehearsed news interview with the chief of staff of the Black Panther Party, David Hilliard. The same year David Hilliard made these comments on repression of the Black Panther Party, Sister Coco, a BPP affiliate through her work for Stokely Carmichael, endured FBI harassment and arrest firsthand. Worse, the BPP experienced dangerous internal party conflict nurtured by covert government activity. Facing these headwinds, Carmichael and Coco ended their connection and work with the BPP in July 1969. Life in the late 1960s was not all danger and political work. Being assistant to Stokely Carmichael gave Sister Coco and her good friend Vera Hope the opportunity to meet a charming fellow activist, the African pop, soul, and jazz vocalist hailing from South Africa, Miss Miriam Makiba. The highlight was when, when uh, he started dating Miriam and brought her to the new school. This is the voice of Miss Vera Hope Walston in conversation with Sister Coco. Oh man, that, you, you can't imagine what that did to us. Because, you know, we, we knew who she was, she was a big star, and, but he belonged to us. We coveted him, we, we, we loved him. He was so wonderful, so gorgeous and beautiful. But, but I, I can speak for myself, Coco never resented, I resented Miriam Keeper, I really did, I resented her. I'm like, how dare you come in here and take our golden boy like this? I, that's how I felt at first. When I got to know her and see how wonderful she was, I, I really felt shabby, you know, because she was the epitome of, uh, of gentleness, graciousness, just a wonderful woman. Yes. And, she, and she invited Coco to stay in her house when they got married. And Coco took her little, her little sidekick with her, which was me. And we went to Mary McKeever's house. And, uh, on the west end in Manhattan, and when we got there, the FBI was waiting for us at the door. Remember that, Coco? We yes, walked there. Yes, baby. Do you know how bad we had to be to 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 look at the FBI and tell them to go to hell? Wow. Do you know how bad we had to be then? I just imagine that. 
Coco's 22, I'm 19, and they, they were asking us, where you going, what you doing here, and we told them, mind your own business, it's none of your damn business, we doing well, something like to that effect, and you know, told them to go to hell, and went on up to Million's place. So we were there for the weekend, for the wedding. Coco behaved herself, but I didn't. But I was so thrilled to be, be there. I'm the little sister that, that I just went crazy. I uh, Looking at her clothes and being in her house, I couldn't, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was in Miriam McKeever's bedroom, in her closet, sitting on the floor, looking at her glorious clothes. I was just, I just like, I was just out of control. So we went to the wedding. The wedding was spectacular. And everybody was there from, um, you know, the diplomatic corps from from African countries. Bobby Seale, Kathleen Cleaver, and Marlon Brando walked in together. And Coco and I made it into the Ebony magazine. The picture of us in, in the Ebony standing there. That, that I carry to this day. I'm looking at it right now. 1970. Do you think your home phone was tapped? Oh, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I'm trying to think of a time. My memory is just not good these days. When, um, was it me? Was it Vera or somebody? Anyway, we picked up the phone and couldn't get a dial tone. And the person started talking in the phone saying, for Christ's sake, can you at least let us make a phone call? You know, people who we felt were tapping the phone <laughs> wasn't letting our line come back through. So we started talking to them every time we pick up the phone. So Ms. Coco, I'm gonna ask you again, right? Like, so your phone is tapped, you, you're trying to go about your business in your car, and you gotta look behind you because there's somebody following, you know. Did you think to yourself, okay, I'm good now. I've, I've done my piece for the revolution. Oh, no, 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 black people, we wear, we wear our badge proudly, we wear our badge proudly. So around this time, you separated from your first husband and remarried. Um, who did you remarry and how did you meet him? Steve Farrow. Steve Farrow was a student who um, had been a supporter at SNCC. When the SNCC office closed, I started giving work, giving my time to the Center for Black Education, which was just about four blocks up the street from where the SNCC office had been. And um, um, they had a, an operation going on health, a health clinic. And um, so I started organizing for them. And I mean, that one square block, 1400 block of Fairmont Street, our presence there was major because these people were, had serious uh, maladies, un, untreated, undiscovered, un everything. And um, I volunteered there for just a few months. And that's where you met Steve Farrell? 
Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So around this, like a little, a little later, right? But but still in the in the general year, frame of years, you had a baby girl. Tell us about the birth of your daughter and how she came to be named. My daughter was born in seventy. So that was a year between the time that the office closed. I went to the Center for Black Education, met Steve Farrell there, um, and um, we later married and had Tondiway. Tondiway was named by Miriam McCaba. She, actually she had three names, but I said, it's too many names. <laughs> she was Tondiway. I forgot the second one, but it had an AA on the end, like Tondaways, Sadiqaway, um, Mbalia, Farrell. So I just kept Tondaway, Mbalia. And uh, she was quite a Tondaway, Mbalia. She was, she, she, she came out with them and vigor and, and not afraid of anything and willing to, 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 you know, just get involved with anything. She was really, the right child at the time. By the early 1970s, life had changed for Sister Coco. She was no longer assistant to Stokely Carmichael. By then, he was known as Kwame Toure and had permanently left Washington, D.C. and the U.S. But Sister Coco's activism continued unabated, the United Church of Christ's Commission for Racial Justice in Washington, D.C. hired her as a lead organizer, and one of her first projects was supporting the members of the Wilmington Ten. The Wilmington Ten, there was not a Wilmington Ten until there was the Ben Shavis and the Wilmington Ten. When I left the SNCC office, when the SNCC office closed, I went to work for the United Church of Christ, which is a white denomination with, with the black segment of it called um, Commission for Racial Justice. And the head of the DC office was Ben Chavis. His having gone to jail with the Wilmington 10 left that space open for someone else to take that position, but I was their assistant. So that is what I did immediately after leaving the SNCC office, I joined the United Church of Christ, Commission for Racial Justice. North Carolina Governor James Hunt said last night that he cannot and will not pardon the Wilmington Ten, but he did reduce their sentences, making all but their leader, the Reverend Ben Chavez, eligible for parole this year. The Ten are nine black men and one white woman convicted in 1972 of arson and conspiracy to shoot a policeman in connection with the firebombing of a white-owned grocery store. The incident took place during a week of racial violence in Wilmington that left two people dead. The nine black men were given in lengthy prison terms, the white woman is out on parole. Okay, so tell me about the work um, that you did in support of, of um, the Wilmington 10 and, and, your, and your good buddy, um, Ben Chavis. 
<laughs> I convinced organizations to support our, our programs and to join us in the things that we did. And organizations were very, very supportive and in fact got behind the Wilmington 10. Although Reverend Shavers did spend quite a bit of time in jail, um, he was never alone in jail. It was always a presence of an organization, a person, or some project going on to um, support him. And why it took so long, I don't know. But um, he was supported the whole while he was there. And when he got out, of course, he came back to run the, the DC field office. I worked with him just a short period of time before I went on, went on to do some other things. As the 1970s became the 1980s, Sister Coco's organizing became increasingly transnational in scope. Many in the Black Freedom Movement in the U.S. had long recognized the common struggles of racism, poverty, and political disempowerment experienced by Black peoples around the world. I was the community organizer in the office. And um, while at the Commission for Racial Justice, since it was a white denomination, I found I was able to get my nose into more things than I could with the Baptist Church on the corner. So, so I, um, the Sixth Pan-African Congress, Sixth Pan, I believe a lot of people went uh, to Africa for that, seven to four. I'm trying to remember. Anyway, um, we're, we're doing um, Pan-Africanism. We are saying we are an African people. Our past has been that of an African. Uh, our present is that of an African. And our future will be that as an African. And a lot of it was, was fed from with Stokely um, and a lot of Pan-Africanists, a lot of black, black power people became Pan-Africanists during this period and traveled to Africa. So, so, so uh, Pan-Africanists were moving to Africa, going to Africa, working in Africa, organizing in Africa, and um, I was one of those. Although Sister Coco was no longer assistant to Carmichael, now Kwame Toure, she remained influenced by his political work and Pan-African organization called the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. This is Toure explaining the party and its mission in 1980. What the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is. Uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party is a mass socialist revolutionary political party. Its objective is Pan-Africanism, which is defined as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. It says that until Africa is free, no African anywhere in the world will be free. 
This is Sister Coco explaining her work at the United Nations in support of Southern African liberation struggles. I had, by this time, hooked up with the OAU Liberation Committee at the United Nations, had gotten credentials, and I was a part of you. I was a part of the UN as a OAU member, OAU Liberation Committee member, and the head of the peacekeeping troop for the OAU was a Nigerian. He was a breath of fresh air for me because I had had a lot of tense moments being a female uh, doing this kind of work. He was perfect gentleman. In fact, he, he, he brought levity to what we did because I would sit with the Southern African Liberation Team, South Africa, Southwest Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, had not yet been liberated in Southern Africa. I would help them strategize. I would write their position papers, or I would draft them. They would, you know, finish them up. And it was fun. And Tandy would be there with me. By the 1980s, the most intensive state surveillance had subsided for Sister Coco. But every so often, she would experience a profoundly jarring moment. Julius Nyeri, the president of Tanzania, was in town, uh, um, an official visit to the White House. Uh, I was invited, I was on the list to, 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 to go there. And uh, there was a lot of movement people, as we called ourselves, there. And so at one point, I looked up and there was brother... And I went, hey, brother, and simultaneous with me going, hey, and extending my hand and feeling his armor and seeing his earpiece and him flinching up and us both releasing each other and looking at each other and then quickly releasing. I realized he was a, a secret police, <laughs> had been coming in the snake office all that time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I didn't say anything, I didn't react, I didn't, I just said, hey brother, I, I, I embraced him, felt the armor, saw the earpiece, knew what was going on, released him, and kept going. Wild times. Yes. Yes. <laughs> felt his gun on my chest. He flinched because he knew that wasn't supposed to happen, but I just went and, and I saw him. Oh, my brother! Just re re reaction, an instant. <laughs> Let's talk about your um, anti-apartheid organizing, because I know that you had um, a protege, Damu Smith, who became, oh. who became a, 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 a important activist in his own right? Oh, Damu, such a wonderful person, such a wonderful person. We missed Damu. We missed Damu tremendously. Um, in fact, Damu helped me out quite a bit because when Anzania, when South Africa was freed and Nelson Mandela came here, came to DC, we did, we meaning, the African nationalists in DC got together and gave him a big reception. Uh, Damu had helped me to organize it, to publicize it. 
and to make it happen. Wonderful strategist, wonderful someone who executes, just wonderful. Oh, we missed Damu. We, I know I missed Damu. Cape Town was under siege. Police vehicles on every street corner. The city overwhelmed with protesters defying the government with marches. The demonstrators had hoped to reach parliament, but were stopped by a line of police and told to disperse. Government censorship regulations prohibit us from showing the scenes of police water cannons firing on the protesters. Hundreds were sprayed with purple dye to help the police identify them later. Angry protesters shouted their defiance even as the police then opened up with tear gas. Those who escaped arrest took refuge in Archbishop Tutu's cathedral. This is for real. And we have committed ourselves. We have committed ourselves to this struggle until freedom is won. A small group of those who had hoped to protest gathered at a church to pray for those who had been arrested. But as the congregation sang the national anthem of black South Africans, God Bless Africa, the church was surrounded by heavily armed police, some carrying whips. Police ordered the worshipers to end the service. But this will be remembered as the day the South African government showed its desperation to control mounting dissent by painting the walls of its oldest city purple, today's color of defiance. Robin Lloyd, NBC News, South Africa. Can you tell me about the um, the, the protests um, at the embassy, the, the anti-apartheid protests at the embassy? Yes, it's front and center, Tandi Way. She was arrested, <laughs> my daughter. Um, we, we, we wanted people to be arrested. We wanted to fill the jails. We wanted to make a big deal about um, South Africa not being free. So we would have regularly scheduled and timed demonstrations at the South African Embassy. And I think half of DC, half of the nationalists anyway, in DC at one time or another was on the picket line and put themselves up to be arrested or was arrested. I didn't get arrested, but um, I was on the line several times. Sister Coco's Pan-African and community organizing continued as the years passed. In the 1990s, she reconnected with some old members of the Black Panther Party, like Afani Shakur, and had occasion to meet a young Tupac. But as the days moved on, the spirit of the times changed. Some comrades moved permanently out of the country, and some dear comrades passed away. Others went about adjusting to a post-Black Power America of the 21st century. Sister Coco, too, tried to navigate the new realities. But life can be unkind to those who dare to challenge social systems and transform worlds.
yesterday I, I found myself thinking about how how I found myself, you know, sleeping on a rolling cot cot in my sister's house, you know, after all these years. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not scornful about it or anything like that, but just how this all has happened. But it has, so it has. And I don't, I don't at all regret. Don't get me wrong. Some people may, but I don't. I must admit, though, that I did think about it recently. About how it would have been different had I this or had I that, but、um, I don't have any regrets for those decisions. You know, like, oh, I should have never done this. I could have been this or no, no. I don't have those kind of regrets at all. Not at all. Not at all. I want to tell you, Miss Coco, when I think about your story, I think about okay, you know, to me, it's like. Dr. Martin Luther King could have had a very comfortable life as、mm-hmm. a middle-class black preacher teaching at his daddy's church, right? Instead,、Absolutely. he became a martyr for black people's freedom, right? Absolutely. And there are a lot of cocos out there, people who made decisions that made their lives not as comfortable as it would have been. I don't have regrets about it. Don't get me wrong. It, it's, it's a little. It saddens me sometimes about the result that it, about what it resulted. But I don't have regrets about it at all. If I had to do it over, the only thing I would do different is that I would be a stronger Trump agent for justice, as Dr. King would say. <laughs> I hear that. Today, Sister Coco lives in the D.C. metro area. And is mostly retired from her organizing and activism work. In her elder years, with no pension for revolutionaries, life isn't easy. But Sister Coco presses onward, buoyed by any chance she gets to help a person around her. In a final question, I asked Sister Coco how it was that she happened on such an incredible life, and this is what she said. I grew up, if I have to confess, always scared, always scared. But I knew that if I applied what I knew, I could get through it. So I never shirked because I was scared. I would stand up because I was scared. <laughs> if that makes any sense, <laughs> because you know. Bullies will get you if they think that you're scared of them. <laughs> This has been a special production for Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm guest producer Professor D. Boos alongside DJ Influence. If you enjoyed this show and want to hear more. Check out my regular podcasts called the Self Determined Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, history, art, activism—be about it.
So, <laughs> so I sold a few wolf tickets, as we used to say back in those days. You know wolf tickets, okay? No, a wolf ticket is um, a way of saying, I made you think I could do it and you bought it. <laughs> I was woofing my way into it. <laughs> All the way through the revolution. Well, I guess in a way, I guess in a way you could say that. <laughs> Tales is produced by Humanities DC. If you want to share your DC story, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to rate and review us wherever our podcast lives on your favorite podcast player. This season is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities.